You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I propose, Wade, that we record the rest of this week's episode in our best Christian Bale Batman voices. You know, Kevin, I'll take it a step further. We have to record the entire episode in our best Heath Ledger Joker voices. Actually, there's a no-go on that one. I did my Joker impersonation with my wife one time, and it apparently freaked her out so much that I'm not allowed to do it anymore. So, sorry, no-go on the Joker. Today in the episode, we take a very special look back at the year 2008 in film, beginning with our retrospective review of Christopher Nolan's the Dark Knight. And then we'll take it a step further in our second segment, offering up our top five favorite films from that year. It's our top five of 2008. All that's coming up on this very special episode, episode 165 of Seeing and Believing. Where is she? If we're going to play games, mm-hmm. I'm going to need a cup of coffee. Ah. The good cop, bad cop routine? Not exactly. Never start with the head. The victim gets all fuzzy. He can't feel the neck. See? You wanted me. Here I am. I wanted to see what you'd do. And you didn't disappoint. You let five people die. Then you let Dent take your place. Even to a guy like me, that's cold. Where's Dent? Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. And why do you want to kill me? kill you? What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, no. No. No, you. You complete me. You're garbage. You kills for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. That is a clip from Christopher Nolan's now iconic 2008 picture, The Dark Knight. Well, we'll be getting to our favorite films from that year 10 years ago. In just a bit, we begin our show with a retrospective review of the superhero film that changed the industry forever. Kevin, as we debated about what 2008 film to devote a full review to on this episode, we went to our listeners to help us out a little bit in a recent Twitter poll. We asked our audience about their favorite 2008 film, And The Dark Knight easily won with a whopping 52% of the vote. Wally plays second with 32%. Other third with 16%. And Darren Ornosky's The Wrestler, Kevin, with 0%. No votes for The Wrestler. Yeah, I mean, I knew it was kind of a dark horse candidate. I didn't expect it to even come in second i i figured it would linger around the bottom i was surprised and disheartened to see it get a fat zero percent that is that is disappointing to me but you know what i'm i'm getting through it 
We'll see where that ends on our list. I was thinking of, of what other film to put in there. You can only do four choices, so it's got to be The Dark Knight, and Wally's really popular, and you got to put others so people can put in their custom picks. And I thought maybe The Wrestler would do well. Surprisingly, it didn't. Okay, so we're going to begin our discussion of the crime thriller that sees Christian Bale's Batman take on Heath Ledger's Joker. And I'd like to direct our listeners to a famous line from the film. Early in the movie, Harvey Dent, played by Aaron Eckhart, of course, says, You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. This piece of dialogue isn't just foreshadowing the film's plot, but it's also, in my opinion, foreshadowing the film's reception as a whole. For many people... This film is heroic. It's this dazzling spectacle of action and tension, but it's lived on long enough that for others it's become a villain, morphing our perception of future blockbuster and superhero films. Or, as the Joker says, there's no going back. You've changed things forever. Kevin, with all of this in mind, let's begin with our first impressions of the film. So, here's my question. What did you think of The Dark Knight when it hit theaters 10 years ago? And how does that compare to what you think of the movie today? Well, I I was pretty in line with just about everybody in America when it first came out. I, I was pretty blown away by The Dark Knight when I first saw it, which was especially impressive because for the longest time, I didn't consider myself much of a Batman fan. I wasn't really into him as a as a kid. I didn't find a whole lot of of interest in him. I was more of kind of the the Spider-Man guy. Spider-Man was kind of the big superhero that I loved growing up and that I loved the movies for. But I I loved the Dark Knight when it first came out. I thought it was really great. Of course, Heath Ledger's performance stuck in my mind as it stuck in so many other people's minds as well. Revisiting it now, I I still think it holds up. I think that it's it's interesting perhaps more for what it isn't as a superhero movie than as what it is. And we can maybe get into that a little bit later. Um, I have cooled on it somewhat from my initial euphoria over it. At the time I saw it, I think I had jotted down this quick review that said something about it being one of the best superhero movies ever made. I don't know if I would go quite that far today, but I still think it's a very fine film. And despite some flaws, I think that it's it's still a, a really good time. How about you? How did your 2008 opinion line up with your 2018 rewatch opinion? Well, okay, so it's typical for me, I think, in many ways, because I remember almost everything about seeing the picture 10 years ago. And it still holds up as one of my favorite theatrical experiences ever. I didn't grow up going to the movies all that much. I watched a lot of movies. We just didn't have a ton of money. There were six of us kids. And I think this was the first time at 21 years old that I saw a film in IMAX. And I remember buying the tickets well in advance. Uh, My parents went with me. Priscilla, she was my girlfriend at the time. She went with me. Other friends went with me. Siblings went with me. We showed up, oh man, over an hour 
maybe two hours before the film actually uh, was playing to line up. And, you know, the movie is shot, many of the scenes are shot for IMAX, right? Not just with an IMAX camera, but they are, they are supposed to be seen and experienced on a big screen. The sound as well, and it really just kind of blew me away. The film was different than I expected because Batman Begins, it, the story is a little more streamlined. The Dark Knight is a little bit more complicated, and I think in terms of plot, that's what has brought me back to the movie so many times is there's so many different angles. And rather than simply being concerned with a big fight scene or just just a cut and dry narrative, there are so many ethical questions that are posed here along with so many great performances that when I look back now, I think I actually appreciate it more. And some of the plot elements that I I don't know that I liked back then, or maybe that I thought were too much back then, uh, I seem to to kind of gravitate towards those. And I think it, it keeps me coming back. So I really do like this film. I like this film a lot. And it, it seems like for me, the opposite has happened. And then I, I feel like I like it more than I did when I saw it uh, 10 years ago. You might be onto something there. I actually just rewatched it a few hours before recording this episode, and what what struck me on the rewatch was was two things. Number one, I I found the action to be less enthralling on a rewatch than than I remembered it. I I don't think that. Nolan is the greatest action director, and it shows in The Dark Knight. But what he left an even stronger impression on me is I came to appreciate even more the notes that you mentioned that Nolan injects of of moral complexity. I don't know if I'll say moral ambiguity, but there's definitely a lot of complex stuff going on in this film in terms of... Uh, you know, the the lies that we all tell each other to keep society running, what constitutes, uh, you know, whether it is ever justifiable, perhaps, to let people go on believing in untruth, whether the myths that we weave around ourselves, around the structures surrounding us, around society itself, whether those myths are helpful or harmful. There's a lot of interesting stuff to chew on, on in there that... I was probably too overcome with all of the spectacle to fully appreciate on the initial watch, but revisiting it now, I came to appreciate how the script by Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonathan finds different angles to attack that theme and explore it through the various characters. And I, I, I think that that's something that even today we don't see many, if any, superhero movies really trying to do. And that ambition is maybe what sets The Dark Knight apart from lesser superhero movies, perhaps. You know, it is fascinating because Iron Man came out, I think, two months before this film. And we all know where that's led. It's led to Infinity War. And that's kind of what Marvel has been telling us, right? All of these films, 20 MCU films have kind of led up to this big moment. And I I've, I watched The Dark Knight probably 
almost every year or at least part of it every year since it's come out. So I've seen it a bunch of times. But I think it's been a couple of years since I've seen it and just recently. And after watching Infinity War and watching so many MCU films, and we review, I think, every single one of them here on the show, it it really, not that those films are all bad, I like many of them, but it, it brings to focus how different this film is from many of those in that it does try to explore these questions, and it's to people... It's frustrating because it doesn't necessarily come down on the right or the left. It is complex. So let's just dig in for a moment on the high-frequency surveillance system, right? And I probably should have mentioned this, but the film you know, has been out for 10 years and so many people have seen it. We are going to get into some spoilers. But you have this surveillance system and... In one sense, it's this direct response or representation of the Patriot Act. And the film doesn't come down on that in that it's completely wrong, but it could be. And it's used to stop evil, but then it needs to be destroyed. And it really kind of hits the big theme, or if I had to say the nucleus or the brain of this film is our evolutionary response to evil. So when evil enters the scene, how do we respond to that? We see the law enforcement uh, individuals, they make moral compromising decisions. We see Bruce Wayne and Batman do that. We see all these characters respond in different ways to stop this unstoppable force. And we're made to question, okay, what is right? What is okay? And Batman isn't always the shining hero here. And it gets back to, right, the Dark Knight. He makes some choices that are questionable. Commissioner Gordon makes a number of choices that are, that's, that they're questionable. And all of that just really kind of struck me in this viewing as, something that it's it's very much food for thought in addition to the spectacle in addition to some of the action scenes that i think are really great it does give us uh, a lot to talk about and i I too i want to get into nolan and the idea of evil and good and the inner character that he seems to be exploring in almost all of his films and he really takes on it really takes on head head on here uh in the dark knight it might be a tribute to the the complexity of the the storytelling here that so many people the dark knight especially coming out as it did uh as as you mentioned with the political context with the patriot act the end of the bush administration the idea that um that it's even possible to have sort of this the singular uh, force for good that can solve the world's problems by acting completely unilaterally. I mean, especially back in 2008, that was a very loaded political topic to explore. And people, there, there's been a lot of discussion around what Nolan is actually saying about this situation. You know, is he is he approving of that kind of thinking? Is he mythologizing it by ending the film on the note that he does with? 
uh, Batman, so to speak, driving off into the sunset or the streetlights while somebody speaks in voiceover of him approvingly? Or are there more notes of being conflicted about it? I mean, there's there's a lot of conversation and back and forth about that. And I think that's a tribute to the complexity at play here because I don't think the movie really eventually settles on a specific perspective that's discernible. That can, you know, you could say that that's maybe a uh, a fault of the film that it is a little bit muddled. But I actually think watching it on this on this rewatch of mine, it feels less like Nolan is just sort of throwing up his hands and not really digging down to these themes, and more about leading us to question: Well, what? What is it that makes us sympathize with a superhero like Batman? Why is it that we find it so exciting to see this vigilante kind of go forge his own path and do some questionable things if it all turns out all right in the end and the force he's facing is a huge threat? Why is that something that's so attractive to us? And I think that that's something that Nolan lets us find in his film without calling it out directly. And I think that makes it pretty effective. And two, just the the consequences that this carries over in that. So there's that scene in the warehouse where he is fighting all of the police officers because they are going to kill innocent people dressed up as clowns. And all of that culminates in the end where he has to become the scapegoat for Harvey Dent. And it just feels it feels like a bold ending. And it's it's weird because so many superhero films today focus on, you know, in those last couple scenes, it's always, okay, what's gonna happen in the next movie? And you have to you have to buy your ticket for the next one. And what's fascinating about the Dark Knight is there is the sense of, okay, there's a story moving forward. But yet Nolan and and his brother, they find a way to make this a single film. So if we didn't get anything after, it would still work. It doesn't have to have something. And, and that's what kind of really kind of this latest viewing that I, I watched uh, – yeah, I finished it today. We started it last night. It really just jumped out at me is that this is a singular movie that doesn't try to even build this huge quote unquote world and to set up all these other characters. It's just there. It's just is. And this too is the first time I've seen the movie since I watched Heat. And so it's it's interesting to see the connections between those two films, especially in that, you know, big opening sequence at the bank with with Joker and his his crew and to see some of those influences just also visually and notice some of the artificial lighting. So during the day, we get a lot of white light, a lot of fluorescent light and what what you know what does that actually mean well 
he's kind of outside of his comfort zone. He's outside of his manner. It's burned down. But is he a light or is he an artificial light? Is he pure? So there are a lot of details that I noticed this time around they haven't noticed before. And I think that uh, attributes it to, to what Nolan has done. Now, Kevin, you mentioned weaknesses. I want to hear what you think are the weaknesses of this movie. Uh, because that, to me, that that is kind of a, probably a jumping place for further discussion. Yeah, well, I mean, I I did kind of it, it begins and ends with uh the way the way Nolan shoots action. I don't think he's a particularly good action director and uh, I think he's he's gotten better, but I I still don't think that's his for, forte. And I think in this film especially it comes to the fore during that a uh, big chase scene with a semi truck that is is thrilling in the way it culminates, but the connective tissue in the in the editing and the even just the the shot choices that Nolan makes as he's got all of these moving pieces. It's a very complicated scene, and it doesn't really hang together. There's a few shots where. It's not exactly clear where things are in relation to each other until a few seconds after you really need to know that information. Uh, it's it's just kind of I I don't won't go so far as say it's, say it's a mess, but it doesn't feel like it coheres as well as it should. Uh, I mean, to give a counterexample, you mentioned heat, and I'm glad you did because the big uh, bank heist shootout in the streets in heat is a perfect example of how to have multiple pieces going into a single action sequence and through camera movement and editing and the way that you position the characters in the frame, man is able to keep clear where everyone is in relation to everyone else and also just make it clear kind of the spatial dynamics in order to build suspense. And there's not a whole lot of that in the action in The Dark Knight the uh, climactic scene in the building where, as you say, Batman has to kind of fight off both the SWAT team and the and Joker's henchmen, that also is kind of, it's not laid out in a way that is very legible to the audience. So even though it's kind of, on a certain level, it's it gets the job done, I don't think that its technical qualities are at the level that you might hope for from a big budget blockbuster like this one. I I think I think you're right about that aspect of Nolan's style as it pertains to The Dark Knight Rises. I think what works for me is it definitely feels chaotic and perhaps it's because the film itself wants to be a little chaotic. It's it wants to move quickly. It reflects, in some senses, uh, the Joker's sensibility, and so I think those scenes work pretty well. Uh, I think if there is a weakness with the action sequences, it's some of those wider shots with Bale as he's. Uh, we're, we're getting kind of his whole motion, getting his his entire body. Some of those are a little weaker, but I think I think chaotic is a good word for the movie and for some of those scenes and why they work. I really do like the big chase scene. I think it's great, and it, it, just watching this too reminding me of how little 
how little it feels like CGI in this movie, right? They really did flip that 18-wheeler, and you can tell. And it does feel very natural. So all that to say is uh, I want to transition a bit to Nolan being this earthy, humanistic filmmaker. And so that kind of goes into the CGI-less aspect of the movie. There is CGI, but you just don't notice it as much. And it also goes back to his characters, because even though his films are very physical and in in some ways earthier than what we get in the other DC movies that we've seen recently, he he doesn't shy away from kind of tangling these spiritual realities. So we get these floating shots with Bale, and he's almost he's almost like an angel, right? Part angel, part demon. And the Joker is is all demon. And we're dealing with these qualities of of pure evil in our response to pure evil and what that does and what that brings out. Whenever I talked about Dunkirk, uh, I mentioned kind of the realities of, 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 of bravery and of fear and Nolan really kind of digging into those those qualities and i see him doing that with and it almost sounds cliche but with good and evil and how we respond to that in our own lives and it's not this utopian view of society but there is some hope there so there there feels like there's some spiritual dimensions kind of going on that he's really digging at even if he is like i mentioned more of a humanist filmmaker yeah, I you know, I don't know that I would choose humanist to describe Nolan. I do think he's more of a cerebral director than somebody who's interested in people as such. At least in The Dark Knight, it seems like a lot of his characters are there more for what they represent rather than as as complex characters that we really get to know, which isn't necessarily a, a flaw. It's just maybe it's a it's a different perspective that I'm that I'm having on the way he builds these characters. And again, that's not really a problem for the Dark Knight. We haven't even really talked that much about the Joker himself, which I think is I mean, and most people would probably agree is the big saving grace of this film. Because in him, the rough edges that I mentioned earlier, the flaws, I don't know that Nolan was necessarily going for a specifically chaotic feel when he was directing this film and in the editing booth. But because of Ledger's Joker's presence in this film, just how much... Uh, raw energy he brings to it, how much unpredictability there is in his performance, and just how the Joker is almost a force of nature more than a than a man. That really does so much to not just paper over the rough edges in the script and in the filmmaking, but make them feel like they're all part of this fabric that the Joker is weaving to kind of tear Gotham apart at the seams. And Ledger's performance is so good at drawing out all these different notes from the character that make that work. He's 
uh, gruesome. He's he's grotesque. He's funny. He's there. There's a lot of witty acting choices that Ledger makes that really make the role sing. Uh, and he's a little bit scary. And he also has just some really interesting speeches he makes. And this is maybe where we can loop back around to what we were talking about at the beginning of the segment, where we're talking about the the moral complexities. The speech that he makes to Harvey Dent in the hospital after Dent has become Two-Face and has the burned face, and he talks about everything being part of the plan and how he sees himself as an agent of chaos. Uh, the, the speech goes something like, you know, if, if one gangbanger gets shot or a truckload of soldiers gets blown up, nobody cares because it's all part of the plan. But if I just kill one little mayor, then everyone loses their minds. And in that speech is crystallized so much of the film as a whole that there are these systems and structures in place in society, and very, very seldom do we actually question them and question why they are the way they are and whether it's possible to change them, and if so, what that change would look like. And I think because Nolan and Ledger are so able to crystallize that into a single character and make him so compelling as a foil for Batman, I think that's what elevates the film and keeps those things sticking in your head so long afterwards and makes it not so much a superhero movie as what you called it in your introduction to the segment, Wade. You called it a crime thriller. And I think that freedom from the strictures of what superhero movies should be or are is maybe what makes The Dark Knight a cut above the rest of the genre. Yeah, and the idea too of of control, and I think that that takes it too from ideas to the actual plot and the narrative, and what works so well is our characters don't feel like they're in control. They have lost control, and as an audience, we feel that too that this evil presence is is everywhere at once he's omnipresent and he could turn around at every corner and that's what makes his character scary i'm reminded of the film nightcrawler and when jake gyllenhaal's character is is kind of learning about this profession uh, they talk about how, you know, if somebody gets shot in a bad part of town, nobody cares. But if somebody gets killed in a, quote-unquote, good area of town or a area of town that's considered safe, that's news. Why? Because we feel like we're not in control anymore. And what we do when we feel like we're not in control. And I think that's also why this film means so much today what do we do when we feel out of control in terms of the countries around us or the people around us or we feel like we have to depend on others what is our response to that and that's where ethical boundaries are blurred in many ways because we don't feel like we're in control and we want to respond to it eh. I also get the sense, too, that at the end, someone could make the case that the Joker won. 
that he his plan succeeded and that even though um batman takes the fall for dent and his cronies the cronies he put away are still going to be in jail uh, that batman has to go into hiding and as a result a deeper threat comes later so it's a fascinating way to end a film and it definitely has the boldness that we see in many middle films like Empire Strikes Back or something else. They don't have to conclude a story. And so we can get a little bit of a darker ending like we see here in, in The Dark Knight. Yeah, that's adventurousness in the storytelling itself is something that's increasingly become a rarity in big franchise filmmaking. So especially watching it in 2018 with you know, the the 20 movies of the MCU under our belt. It's kind of bracing in a way to see a movie where the villain arguably wins, the iconic uh, superhero vehicle gets blown up, the superhero is running away from the cops, and then curtains. That is, it, it's, it's just, it's a breath of fresh air and something that we could use a lot more of. That is our review of The Dark Knight. Looking back at the 2008 film, we know, Wade and I, that you out there in Seeing and Believing Land have seen this movie. It is, you know, a fairly big movie, you, mm-hmm. would, say, uh-huh. you would say. So we want to know your thoughts. Have you seen The Dark Knight recently? Do you, like Wade, rewatch it on a regular basis? What do you find special about it? What would you like to add to the discussion? We want it all. Make sure to tweet us your thoughts at cbelievepod, at cbelievepod, or send us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. In our second segment, we're going to be talking about some of the other movies we like from 2008 in our top five list. Del Rio by John Milwe. We really appreciate everyone who's taken an opportunity to support us through our Patreon campaign. If you haven't done that yet, it really is a great opportunity. We have a perfect $5 level. It's called the What Can You Buy for $5. That's the level. You get a lot of perks. And Kevin, I want to ask you that question. What could someone hypothetically buy for 5 bucks? Five bucks would get you a Michael Caine costume for Halloween. You know, there's probably plenty of Batman and Joker costumes that were sold back in 2008, but I don't think very many of the Michael Caine costumes sold, so you can probably get one on clearance for pretty cheap. And if you don't know what Michael Caine wears (laughs) outside of the Batman films, just watch any other Christopher Nolan film, and and you'll be there because— Fun fact, 
Michael Caine is Christopher Nolan's dad, and that's why he's in all of his movies. So What a twist. <laughs> you can support us on Patreon for five bucks. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. You know, Kevin, we've got some great feedback on some past episodes. I want to read one of those. It's from at Brian Howell. He says, in response to our eighth grade review, he says, totally agree about eighth grade at the start of the film, today's topic being yourself. But he says, what is a self? As you say, it's only in community, only with others and always in process. Such a great film. And best dad moment in film. Thanks for the review. A really great dad moment. I cannot underestimate some of the great dad moments here in 8th in grade, Kevin. Yeah, it was it was quite good. Brian definitely knows his stuff. Thanks for writing in, Brian. We also got a tweet from Metali Perkins, who wrote in, I enjoyed 8th grade so much. Thanks for this thoughtful review. Thank you, Metali. And I do have to have a slight bit of celebrity starstruckness here because Metali is actually a, a novelist in her own right. And I happen to have read one of her novels in book club. So it was really fun to get that bit of feedback as well. Oh, that's really cool. That's awesome. I, I need to check out some of her work. I have I have not. Uh, you know, Kevin, we also did the poll, and I mentioned it earlier. It was the, the best films of 2008. We're going to jump into our top five, but I think it'd be good to kind of give us an idea of some of the movies that were released and some of the responses. I'll read a couple. Kevin, you'll read a couple, and hopefully by the end of it, we'll have a good idea of some really great 2008 films that may or may not make our list. We got a, a response from Hot Dog Thursday. And <laughs> I don't know who, I don't know the real person behind the hot dog, but yes. I love, I love the handle. Uh, Miss, he, Mr. Thursday, if you could, <laughs> if you could let us know, uh, we are very interested in, in knowing whether, whether hot dog is your first name or whether hot is your first name and dog is your middle name. We, we have lots of questions is I guess what I'm saying. It's, it, it, I mean, the questions are, are kind of endless. And uh, do you like chili with your hot dogs? And do you eat hot dogs on Fridays? I have, yeah, I have a lot of questions. He uh, actually voted other in the poll. And he said uh, that his favorite film of 2008 is I've Loved You So Long. I have not seen that movie, Kevin. So I guess that puts puts my list in question. Uh, but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that he suggested that. I want to I seek it out. Yeah, I'll have to check that out myself. I know it's, you know, Kristen Scott Thomas is the star of that film mm -hmm. and she's pretty great. So definitely a gap I need to rectify as well. We heard from Christy Olson who wrote in, I believe she also voted other. In any case, she had a three film response. She said, Baby Mama, Son of Rambo, and The Boy in the Striped Pajamas were some of her favorites from 2008. Thanks for writing in, Christy. Mike D. at Yojimbo Daring says that his favorite film is Burn After Reading, quote, What Did We Learn? Unquote. Best line maybe ever. Yeah, and I dig that Twitter handle, by the way. Nice to see other Yojimbo fans out there. We also heard from Andrew Bodenbach, who said, It's probably The Dark Knight, but I voted other because on the right day, it's Tropic Thunder. Okay, yeah, I, 
I'll, I'll probably mention that film as we talk more. Josh Blair says, Iron Man, sorry, not sorry. And then he says, real talk, Twilight. I forgot that Twilight released in 2008. Kevin, Wade, I didn't even how can think you even- about it. Oh. How can you how can you even call yourself a cinephile and and forget something like that? I mean, honestly. Oh man, I don't even know how people are going to listen to my list knowing I did not consider Twilight. Yep. yep. Lots of lots of asterisks next to this episode, I have to say, but we'll we'll soldier on anyway. Thanks so much to all of our listeners who participated in the poll and to those who shared a little bit of extra of their thoughts. We love to hear from you. As I mentioned earlier, you can find us on Twitter at SeaBelievePod if you want to take place in the conversation further. second segment that we told you about earlier in this episode. Wade, this is kind of turning into a summer tradition of ours that I'm enjoying quite a bit. Obviously, our podcast started a little bit, you know, only a few years ago, so we haven't had the chance to recount our favorites from years predating that time. So it's fun here in the doldrums of August as not very much is getting released in the lead up to award season to kind of maybe do some of these retrospectives. It's it's always a good time for me. I love it. We kind of began it, I guess, last year with 2007, a great film year. And what it does too is it forces me to kind of go back to some movies that I've seen from that year, but also seek out. I, I probably watched, oh, seven to 10 2008 movies that I had not seen. So it would, I, I, I appreciate that aspect of it, even if it's just for me personally. Yeah, me too. I, I like the opportunity, especially to revisit films that I liked and see if they hold up. It's always, mm. I don't know, it, it feels instructive to revisit favorites and see if they have the same effect uh, 10 years on. Well, uh, as we said, this is going to be our top five list of 2008. Uh, we're going by the year of theatrical release in the United States. There was a slight snafu with 2007 where I said four months, three weeks, and two days was one of the better films of that year, but it did not actually get a theatrical release until 2008, so we just wanted to clarify that for our viewers. Before we get started, Wade, I am kind of curious, as you were watching and re-watching all those films that you mentioned, and you ended up with your top five, were there any, any surprises for you during that process? Were there things that didn't make the cut that you initially thought would, or some things that came out of left field for you? Yeah, you know, there are two films in my top five that were films I had not seen before, you know, a month ago. And that's surprising. Last year when I did my top five of 2007, I watched a bunch of films I had not seen and I saw some good movies, but none of the new ones, the new views, cracked my top five. So that was a big deal. There are also some movies and they 
They didn't necessarily crack my top five or top 10, but huge surprises. And we talked about this before the show, Kevin. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull had not seen that movie in 10 years. And I really dug it. I liked it a lot, uh, surprisingly. <laughs> I, I liked it when I saw it, but I, you know, you start to think about like all the scenes and you're like, okay, you know, and you hear, you hear people kind of trashing it and you kind of get caught up in that. And you're like, well, I was naive, you know, at 21. And I don't know. I like, I would love to do a, a full review of that film just to talk it out and get it out there in the world, I probably would regret it. That one is kind of like 10, 11, you know, on my top on my top 10 uh, list of 2008. But there were so there were a couple surprises. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll name the two movies later that I actually bumped into my top five that were movies I had not seen before uh, this year. So that that was a bit of a surprise. But the first couple ones, not a surprise at all. Yeah, for me, I don't know if there were any big surprises. Maybe the biggest surprise is that there weren't a whole lot of surprises. I did kind of try to catch up with some 2008 films that I hadn't seen yet and was hoping that maybe one of them might shake things up and sneak onto my best of list, but didn't really manage to do that here. Although, you know, I do have to say I did not see I've Loved You So Long. So maybe that was the the mm. 08 film that eluded me. But in any case, I, I felt like my, my top five this time was pretty settled, which, you know, doesn't always happen when I'm trying to make the hard cuts. So yeah. I'm interested to hear what's in your top five as well. Why don't you kick us off? What do you have at number five? We are gathered here to celebrate love, pure and simple. Rachel is pure, Sydney is simple. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you look great. Oh no, I'm so fat. Stop it. No, you. I would swear to God that you were puking again. No, I can really see rehab has done wonders for you, Kim. Darling, hi. Is your sister behaving herself? I'm Shiva the Destroyer, and your harbinger of doom for this evening. It's going to be perfect. Oh, God! Lahaya! Honey, don't smoke. I don't think it's... Can you smoke here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone in the house is looking at me like I'm a sociopath. I mean, what do you expect me to do? Burn the house down? That was a mattress fire. Okay, you know what? Fine. You don't get to sit around for the rest of my life deciding what I'm supposed to be like. Are they going to play all weekend? No, boys. So number five is, like I mentioned, one of those films I had not seen until about a month ago. It's directed by Jonathan Demi, who is... He directed one of my favorite films of all time now. It's Stopped Making Sense. I saw it last year for the first time and really do like it. The film that made my list from 2008 is Rachel Getting Married. Here's a quick synopsis of the movie. A young woman played by Anne Hathaway, who's been in and out of rehab for years, returns home for the weekend for her sister's wedding. You know, Demi brings this sort of natural, organic feel to the camera work. He shoots in mostly handhelds, and it looks like he's really kind of pushing the iris and the aperture in many lower-lit scenes. So 
in many ways, we almost feel like we're watching this this home movie. And in fact, he does splice in some camcorder footage into the actual movie itself. It, it feels like a real family here. It feels like real arguments and real reconciliation and real grief. And I'm a sucker for family movies. And I talked about it, come from a big family. I really, those are some big themes for me. And I think this movie nails it. And it's been talked about for years, but I finally got to see Anne Hathaway's career performance here. She plays Kim and Kim is this perfect storm of a character. And yet, even though we shouldn't like her, the way Anne Hathaway plays Kim, we we feel for her. We want the best for her. And so I'm watching this movie and there's like one hand over my eyes and a huge smile on my face because it's so awkward and cringe-inducing but also really funny at times. And that... <sighs> Hathaway really gets us to feel or to care about this, this difficult character. Bill Irwin, he plays Kim and Rachel's father. He's he's wonderful. And I, I've been trying to kind of go back and look at some of the spiritual themes in these movies on this list. And at one point, Kim says, she says, sometimes I don't want to believe in a God who would forgive me. And I think that line is the key to the whole movie. She's struggling to change here. And the idea of accepting grace, right? Things aren't settled in this movie, but it understands that lasting change only comes through acts of forgiveness and grace. And it's so important. There's this powerful scene where Hathaway's character is being cleaned in a bath by her sister. And it visually, right, it reflects this sort of cleansing, this baptism, but also this grace and reconciliation. It's just a powerful moment in the movie. And uh, yeah, it's a great film. Uh, Rachel Getting Married is is number five. Yeah, that is a really good pick. And it's one that I liked quite a bit when I first saw it. I didn't get a chance to revisit it for this list, but you are 100% right about Anne Hathaway. There's a moment... Uh, there's a scene with just her that has stuck in my memory ever since I've seen it. It's when she's uh, she's tr- essentially fleeing the house after this explosive argument with her sister, and you know she's in the car, she's by herself, and she's just full on ugly crying. Mm. And Hathaway's performance in that moment, it's it's so raw and so real. Like it it, it is the mo- maybe the most convincing ugly cry I've ever seen in a movie. It's it's really something to behold. And the rest of her performance is also just the way she's able to create this character who's sardonic and abrasive, yet also, you know, isn't a chore to be around. It, it, that's a balancing act, and, and she deserves a lot of credit for it. Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful. And you kind of step back and you say, it could have gone wrong with another actress and yet you know she get she gets it so right yeah that's true well my number five is a film that also has just this powerhouse performance at the center of it that would be darren aronofsky's film the wrestler starring mickey rourke
piece of meat and I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. You know, at the time this came out, I remember it being almost like a stunt performance for Rourke. It was kind of a comeback role. He'd spent a lot of time outside of at least respectable movie making, so to speak. Uh, he had had, you know, as many celebrities do, he'd had a little bit of work done and he looked very different from his his younger days in the 80s kind of playing this this movie heartthrob uh in the wrestler he plays a washed up professional wrestler named randy the ram robinson and aronofsky builds this entire character study around the fallout he experiences both physical emotional and in his relationships uh, the, the fallout he's experienced from being this entertainer who kind of gives it his all in the ring. And I mean, there's a lot that I really like about it. Aronofsky is a really good stylist and those abilities do come to the fore in some of the wrestling scenes in this film. But he also, in this film, displays a real strong eye for almost a verite feel. There are many shots where his camera just follows along behind Rourke's character as Rourke you know, walks to his trailer at the end of a long day or is making his way around the deli counter where he you know, works to make ends meet. And that's, there, there's kind of this immediacy to it that really makes you come to know Robinson, flaws and all, and to feel deeply for him. And in those final seconds of the film where he performs his signature move and then the screen goes black, that's a really, I mean, that that is another one of those memorable moments from a film where even, you know, it, it sticks in my mind and I think about it a lot. So The Wrestler is a, is a really fine film and I won't take it personally that, Nobody else voted for it. Missing <laughs> you know, I think you kind of hit on a good point as it pertains to doing this list and doing it 10 years later. I think it really allowed me to think about what what stayed with me and what continues to stay with me. And even though there are films that I recently saw, there are movies that I saw for the first time 10 years ago. What images stick with me? I've seen the wrestler once, and that image you talked about is is powerful. It's number it didn't make my top five. It's number fifteen on my list, but some great moments. I think one of my favorites is early on in the film. He is in this, uh, I think, school classroom with the other wrestlers, and they just kind of start nonchalantly talking about what they're going to do on stage and in the ring, and uh, just it really kind of says so much about their careers and where they are, and. It's a hard film uh, to watch, but it's definitely one from a filmmaker who, 
who knows what he's doing. Yeah, for sure. And uh, incidentally, the Bruce Springsteen written song that plays over the end credits, written pretty much specially for the film, is... I, I love that song. I think it's a, a great Springsteen song. So yeah. one one last little thing to enjoy about it. What do you have at your number four, Wade? So number four is also a film I just saw for the first time. It's from Hirokazu Koreeda. If you have listened to the show for any length of time, you know that I'm a big fan of Koreeda and his work, and I feel like I'm still digging in deep to it. Still Walking is the movie from 2008. It tells the story of one day in the life of a grieving Japanese family. Set 12 years after the death of their eldest son, two parents invite their surviving children home for a small family reunion. As with all of Koreeda's stories, though, emphasis is not really placed so much on the plot as it is on the details of each member's relationship with one another. This is... Slow cinema, but it it really does speak to the nuances of family relationships. In that way, it's similar to Rachel getting married. None of the characters here are are perfect, but they feel real. And I say that all the time about Corieta's work. They feel real, and some feel tragically real. With this movie, I felt maybe even more so than some of the others. This is a movie that pushed my world to slow down and while i'm watching this film i'm i'm really pressed to think deeply about my personal relationships and i i really value that because with our world and 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 we're going everywhere and our phones are always going off we need that quality that that stop and sit and watch people make food Right, that's what we get in in this movie. These great shots. In terms of spiritually speaking, too, uh, this film really kind of pushed me to to really kind of see the sacred in the the mundane, and really kind of as First Corinthians says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The importance of meditation, of everyday faithfulness, and of life's big moments occurring in the everyday moments around us. So a really great film from Corieta. You know, it's funny. It's not even its best, uh, but it's 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 really great. So still walking, uh, number four for me. Yeah, that is a really strong one. And again, one of those that was on the cusp of making my list didn't quite make it. I should probably revisit it, though, and see that might shoot it a little bit farther up. We'll, we'll see about that. I like that you mentioned the... Uh, the first Corinthians passage about do everything to the glory of God, because my pick for number four is it is about a, a man who, if he wasn't doing what he did for God's glory, he was doing it because it was his vocation. And it's really inspiring to watch it unfold in this film. It's a documentary and it is James Marsh's Man on Wire. This is, of course, the famous story of Philippe Petit who strung a wire between the Twin Towers back in the 70s and did a tightrope walk, however, you know, hundreds of feet above the solid concrete below. Uh, did this tightrope walk back and forth one morning. And just the way that enchanted so many people down below and even kind of seems 
from the documentary at least, to have cast a spell over the friends and collaborators that Petit roped into helping him accomplish the feat. What I like about Man on Wire isn't just that, though. I th it's a tremendously fun documentary. It has the feel of a heist film as it goes deep into the details of how they get up the two towers, how they string the wire, how they avoid getting arrested this entire time. There's an entire suspenseful sequence where it talks about playing a game of hide-and-seek with a security guard and they're almost going around in circles trying to avoid him <laughs> while also staying where they are so that all of their hard work isn't for naught. It's a really inspiring documentary. It's a lot of fun. And I think it's very slyly critical at some points of Petit's single-minded drive to be the guy who did this thing. Uh, it's it's a, it's a just a great documentary on all facets. I don't know if I can talk it up much more, but highly worth your time to check out. It's James Marsh's Man on Wire. I start walking as a wire walker who is studying his cable. And instead of doing an entire study of the cable for the whole lens, seeing the first cavality and keep walking, seeing the middle, which is so soft and treacherous, seeing the second cavality, how it is. No, I do only go to the first cavality and I know enough. Now I'm going to perform. Yeah, it's a great film. It's actually number nine on my list. So it's one that I really do like. And you did a great job of setting it up, too. It's it's a movie that is once an action thriller. It's this nod to ingenuity and human spirit, but how that can also be corrupted. And I feel like at the end, as that sort of all comes together and it plays out, is really where the heart of the film lies. And I appreciate Marsh and his desire to dig into that darker side of of the story and um yeah he produces something that's really good way better than the the zemeckis film uh, which it's not bad but it, it just cannot hit the level of of man on wire i want to go ahead and move on to my number three and that's andrew stanton's wally you know wally is an enigmic film it's a bold film and it's one that I I kind of wonder how it got made. And I think the only reason that it did get made is that Pixar at the time is kind of operating on its own. And they have creative control because really for the first 30 minutes, we're just following a robot around on a deserted planet Earth. Another robot joins them. It's a robot love story. You know, who's who's pitching this uh, as they kind of work through this narrative? It's unexpected. It's risky, but it's also amazing. And I, I love what this movie says, too, about technology and creation care. So it's not only a fun story. It's not only a story that is incredibly tight tense at times, uh, but it's a story that has ideas. And particularly, you'll notice how the space station is without spot, it's without blemish, and yet Earth is this trash dump. And it communicates how we as humans really desire technological advancement, we desire immediacy, perfection, 
But what does it cost to our bodies? What does it cost to our planet? The Bible says, right, the heavens declare the glory of God, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. How can technology subvert that? Or how can, I guess to use maybe a simple word, how can laziness subvert that? So a lot to think about. It's sweet, it's hilarious, and it also has some great nods to classic science fiction films, specifically 2001 A Space Odyssey, and those are kind of the proverbial cherries on top. It's also a little dark too, right? It's a little dark, and yet it's a kid's movie. So a lot to like about WALL-E, my number three, directed by Andrew Stanton once again. Autopilots got some bad news. Um, Operation Cleanup has, well, uh, failed. Wouldn't you know? Rising toxicity levels have made life unsustainable on Earth. Unsustainable? What? Uh, darn it all! We're going to have to cancel Operation Recolonize. So, uh, just stay the course. Um, Rather than try and fix this problem, it'll just be easier for everyone to remain in space. Easier? Mr. President, uh, sir, I think, sir, uh, huh? time to go. Okay, I'm giving override uh, directive A113. Go to full autopilot, take control of everything, and do not return to Earth. Repeat, do not return to Earth. Let's get the heck out of here. I mean, Wally is kind of from that golden age of Pixar, where you would you would watch a film, and I mean, there there are certain hallmarks of American animated cinema that that show up, but there are certain parts where it's just breathless, and you don't know what's going to happen. I'm thinking of of that breathless instant where you think Wally is broken beyond repair. And mm. uh, you you think his memory's gone, and you're not quite sure. Is Pixar really going to end it on this note, or is it going to give us the happy ending we expect? Now, I mean, people who've seen the film know the answer to that question, but that that uncertainty and that suspense is something that is really remarkable, and it's something that is vintage, you know, golden age Pixar. So it's a really good pick. I also observe that I really like how this film, I think alone, out of all the, the Disney uh, Pixar animated films is the only one to combine live action with animation. And <laughs> yeah. if you're going to do have just one live action actor in your animated film, make it Fred Willard. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, oh, it's just perfect. It's so great. It's, yeah, I just love yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's a really strong pick. I like that one quite a bit. My number three is a film that I still feel to this day got a raw deal. It's uh, Tarsum Sings the Fall. At the time, he was going just by Tarsum. But this is a film that he shot over many years, and he basically piggybacked the shooting of this film off of the, the commercials and music videos that he was filming for, for other productions. And so there's an inventiveness to it that is kind of born of the necessity of the fact that he was shooting this almost on the fly, trying to get to it when he could while in the midst of these other projects. The mystic spies danger in your palm. 
You've taken too many pills. Death is near. Danger? Suicide is not the answer. He says he also knows of a secret chant. Whenever we're in trouble, something about googly, googly? He says if you fall asleep, you will never wake up. The fall is difficult to describe. I guess the the, synop- the nutshell synopsis would be that a stuntman is injured and he's recovering in a hospital. He befriends a four-year-old girl who speaks very little English. And in order to gain her trust, he begins telling her this wild story. And the film takes us into that story itself. I don't think that synopsis really does the movie justice because this is just a lushly beautiful film. I mean, anybody who's seen a Tarsen film knows that the guy has a great eye. Uh, He works often with Aiko Ishioka, whose costumes are just, just absolutely gorgeous. And the way that the film unfolds is interesting in that it doesn't just unfold like a fairy tale we've seen before. It unfolds the way a fairy tale unfolds in the imagination of a child. When you're a little child, you know, you're listening to a story and maybe you misunderstand some things or you substitute a meaning for a certain plot element that isn't doesn't actually correspond with the Uh, storyteller's intention, but enriches the story for you, the listener. The Fall manages to capture that childlike joy in story that I've not found in any other film, period. And it's, it's just so, it's beautiful, it's inventive, and by the end, it's genuinely... Uh, heartbreaking it's it's a fantastic film i can't highly recommend it enough i watched this last week and you had you'd mentioned this film to me it it really didn't come across my radar at all so i had had some time and i watched it and the visuals are like you mentioned breathtaking and awe-inspiring and i like the movie for me the characters were severely underdeveloped. And you get kind of this great introduction to the characters in the fairy tale, and yet we only really follow along one, and the others are just kind of side pieces. Now, maybe that's supposed to be like that. Maybe it's supposed to reflect some sort of aspect of childhood storytelling. But I didn't... I didn't feel as emotionally invested as it sounds like you were. And so a beautiful movie to watch. It just didn't it didn't go all the way for me and it left me a little bit disappointed. Though, like I mentioned, beautiful film to watch. It is a very odd film. I'll give you that. There's you kind of have to be on its wavelength to to really to to enjoy it. So I can understand that being something that's not everybody's cup of tea. But man, oh man, do do I love watching it and love recommending it to people just to to hear what they think of it. <laughs> you know, I I would have loved to see it on the big screen. I think that would be great. Did you get a chance to see it on the big screen well, or? Uh, well, that's know? what I mean from this being kind of an injustice. It really 
barely got a theatrical release at all. It's, it was one of those films mm. that the studio got it and kind of was just like, what are we supposed to do with this thing? How are we going to market this weird story about a, a child and a stuntman in a hospital telling a fairy story to each other? Like, how are we going to do this? So it didn't stay in theaters for very long and really only got discovered by most people once it hit home release. And that's how I saw it. I would give a lot to be able to see it in a theatrical form. It, it would just be ravishingly beautiful, I'd have to think. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see it on the big screen. One of the best, I will, I'll give it, it's one of the best shot films of 2008, even if it doesn't completely work for me. My number two, kind of moving on from that, is Martin McDonough's In Bruges. So for our listeners who have not yet seen this film, here's an official synopsis to kind of get you going. Ray and Ken, played by Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, are two hitmen, and they are in Bruges, Belgium, waiting for their next mission. While they're there, they have time to think and discuss their previous assignment. When the mission is revealed to Ken, it's not what he expected. I could go into more detail. Here's here's what I'll kind of sum it up with. This film probably shouldn't exist it's a neo-noir black comedy it's submerged in violence it's covered with a layer of irreverence and yet for all of its mixing and it it's matching it works and i i think from my you know number two slot it more than works it's very funny it's unpredictable and I think what impresses me so much about the movie is its ability to tackle these kind of large spiritual ideas without becoming overbearing. So Bruges, Belgium works as this sort of stand-in for purgatory. And each character is either headed for redemption or damnation. They must consider their sins. They must consider the cost of their sins. And we see this war for these men's souls sort of play out explicitly and in abundance. This is going to be one of those movies you either really like or it just does not work for you. But it works for me. What is it you've done, Raymond? Murder, father. Why did you murder someone, Raymond? For money. Who did you murder for money, Raymond? You, father. After I killed them, I walked home to await instructions. Get to Bruges. 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 Where's that? It's in Belgium. For two weeks, in Bruges, in a room like this, with you? No way. Mr. Blakely? Yes? You have a message. Number one, why aren't you in when I told you to be in? You better be in when I call again, or they'll be now to pay up. I'm telling you. He swears a lot, doesn't he? Let's go out. Go out where? The pub. Harry, I've got an idea. I'm gonna go back to my room, jump into the canal, see if I can escape. If you go outside and round the corner, you can shoot at me from there and try and get me. I'll go outside, then which way? Right or left? You go right, don't you? Okay, on the count of one, two, three, go. Who says it? Oh, you say it. You guys are crazy. Maybe that's what hell is. The entire rest of eternity spent in Bruges. Back off, shorty. You don't know karate. Ah! No, 
people count me in on the people who it really works for. This is my number two pick as well. And, you know, this is one that, you know, I saw, I didn't see it on its release, but I saw it fairly soon thereafter. And I liked it a lot, but it wasn't something that blew me away so much. You know, it, it was impressive, but not an all-timer, in my opinion, at the time. I rewatched it again maybe four or five years ago and loved it. Just something about that revisit, it it clicked for me and I really, I, I just got it. And it is kind of remarkable that all these disparate elements work so well. McDonough is so good at mixing different emotional tones so that you do have this comedy, you do have this this tragedy and this this almost horror at at what these characters are capable of. And they all blend together somehow and, and still work. And I, I mean, that's a tribute to McDonough's writing. It's also a tribute to the performances. I think Farrell, Colin Farrell and... Brendan Gleeson are so, so good in this film. And of course, Ray Fiennes mm-hmm. is, is great as yeah. the over-the-top profane mob boss, but when has Ray Fiennes not been great in something? Yeah. So it's just great cast, great director, great script, great movie. Yeah. It's rough around the edges for some people, but uh, it works in a way three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri doesn't. And I... I agree. Yeah, listeners will remember I did like that film, and I've kind of worked my way back a little bit on it, and I still need to view it a second time to kind of make sense. But either way, this is really McDonough at the top of his game on so many levels, and he seems to understand this story more, and perhaps this is kind of the the way it works. Well, Kevin, we're here. We're at our number one. I think all of our listeners at this point, uh, they, you know, they know what this is going to be for me. And of course, it's Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. We spent so much time talking about it. I, I won't go into too much detail, but I did mention it. And I, I like to kind of bring personal experience into this. I did talk about the personal experience of seeing this for the very first time. This movie is partially responsible for me writing about films and Christopher Nolan is that in general and this is one of those movies where I had I have such great memories of seeing it for the first time you know sometimes people will talk about going to see a movie and they'll say you know you're not really spending time together this is a great memory with Priscilla my parents some siblings friends and I I think it's movies like this that make me hope that theaters continue and perhaps even expand a bit. I can't go see every movie. Uh, A lot of people can't go see a lot of movies in theaters because of kids or finances or whatever reason. But there are movies that come along and they just, they're meant to be seen on the big screen. And this is one of those movies. And I've heard rumblings of this probably being released in IMAX again. And yeah, that would be awesome for a limited time just to go see it one more time in in IMAX. But uh, Dark Knight, number one. Yeah, you know, and if that's new uh, IMAX release does happen sometime in the near future, I'd go see it. Yeah. I think that would be, it would be really a treat to revisit the experience of seeing this 
uh, in a theatrical format once more. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I have the Blu-ray, but because I was watching it on one TV and then another TV, I watched it on Netflix, and it, it looks good, right? But there's it just doesn't compare uh, to a better quality screening of that movie. Yeah, well, that's... That's that is a good pick. It's not quite in my you know in my top films of the year, but I have a good time with it, and I think our discussion in the first segment really highlighted uh, a lot of its strengths. My number one is a film that didn't get a whole lot of attention. It, it definitely wasn't on the level of a Dark Knight. Let's just say that um, it did get some love from critics. Roger Ebert put it at number one on his list of best films of that decade. So it, mm. it's not unloved by critics, but it was perhaps unloved by larger audiences. I'm talking, of course, of Charlie Kaufman's film Synecdoche, New York. This is a film that he wrote and also in his directorial debut sat in the director's chair as well. This is another odd film. It's got Philip Seymour Hoffman in a great performance as a playwright who decides to make and to write and stage a play about life itself. And the film follows him as his project gets more and more complex. And there's, you know, doppelgangers of the actors running around. And it essentially becomes less of a fiction that this playwright is constructing, but more like he's bringing life inside this, this realm of the play. I've been thinking a lot about dying lately. You're going to be fine, sweetie. Appreciate that, Claire. But you are, you poor thing. You know, regardless of how this particular thing works itself out, I will be dying. And so will you. And so will everyone here. <clears throat> and that that's what I want to explore. We're all hurtling towards death. Yet here we are for the moment, alive. Each of us knowing we're, we're going to die. Each of us secretly believing we won't. And of course, it's got the signature Kaufman themes of uh, angst over uh, relationships with others. It's got a healthy dollop of uh, anxiety over mortality, of thinking about death and what that means for us while we're still alive. And it's just, it's a deeply haunting movie. Uh, like there's there's so much about it that makes you think about your own your own life and, and what the larger meaning of existence is. Do, you know, how do we find our meaning? Who tells us what value our lives have? And what does it mean to live a life that's that's worthy of being remembered or worthy of you know spending turning into an art piece there's there's a lot here and i'm having trouble discussing it because frankly i've seen it many times and i still don't know that i have my arms all the way around it but i do know that i love it to bits and for a directorial debut, Kaufman shows a lot of confidence behind the camera, and it's him directing from one of his own scripts, so even that alone is 
is something to take note of when it happens. Uh, Synecdoche, New York is a great pick. Just, you know, make sure you don't watch it when you're feeling really down about things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't sell that explanation short because that's one of the I think the one of the best concise explanations of this film that I've heard or read just in those few moments. I have this at number seven and there are times I, I don't know what to think of this movie. Sometimes I don't know how to think of this movie, but there's something powerful and emotionally charged about it. And I've seen it one time. I think I saw it a year and a half ago or something. And I think about it often. And I wonder what I, how I'm going to feel about it when I watch it again. But there is a quality to it that's difficult to explain, but yet very personal so a film that i really like it's a really good pick and i i'm i'm just kind of looking forward to kind of digging (laughs) back into it but like you said you have to be in the right frame of mind because it's one of those movies that it i don't want to say it feels like a burden because that make it makes it sound like a terrible experience it's not but it is something that makes you contemplate life and that could be good and that that also could be a bit depressing (laughs) You know, it, it reminds me a, a little bit of the fiction of David Foster Wallace, where it is, mm. you know, it is challenging. There's there, it requires you to really be thinking about what it's doing. But there's also a lot of rewarding aspects to it too. Like th- this, it's heavy. And it is cerebral, but it's also a lot of fun. Kaufman does so much to just embrace surreality and uh, just humor. There, there, things that happen to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in this film are really, you know, morbidly funny. There's a sense of humor behind this and an inventiveness in Kaufman's visuals that. Even if you're, you know, not sure that you're quite following everything it's doing on a thematic level, it's still fun to watch. And I, you know, I, I would highly recommend that if you're feeling unsure about it, you know, just give it a try and don't stress so much about, you know, unpacking everything about it. It's the same thing I tell people when they when they worry about reading Infinite Jest too. So that's our top five, Kevin. I'd like to do a quick run through of our top five, but then also go from six to 10 and give comments on some of those. And then maybe also point out some bigger films that released in 2008 that maybe we like, or we don't like to kind of get a bigger picture of the year. So starting at number one, kind of work your way back. Sure. So uh, my number one, I just got done talking about that's Synecdoche, New York from Charlie Kaufman. Number two is In Bruges. Number three is Tarsem's The Fall. Number four is James Marsh's documentary Man on Wire. Number five is Aronofsky's The Wrestler. So those are the ones that I settled on, but I mean, it was, there's a lot of goodness in the films that follow that. Wally was at my number six spot, just barely missed the cut. I actually really like Slumdog Millionaire, Wade. Mm. I feel like mm. this is an Oscar winner that doesn't get much respect. I feel like there was a sizable backlash even at the time, and it doesn't get much attention now, but I think it's, it's, basically a fairy tale mm. and i think that danny boyle's directing meshes really well with the kind of story that it is 
Um, and yeah, I think it's there's an enchanting quality to it that I really like. Yeah. Uh, Still Walking is on there as well. And then I've also got Burn After Reading in my top 10. I know that that's uh, controversial. Some people tend to think that the Coens let their misanthropy run away with them a little bit with, with that film. Um, but looking at current events... Seems more prescient than misanthropic to me. <laughs> hmm. No, I have that at number 19. I don't know if I was on the same wavelength in terms of like humor and just where that film, maybe how that film gets to where it's going to be. But I think there's something really smart about that movie and something that feels especially relevant today. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good picture. Yeah, and then uh, of course I do have four months, three weeks, two days on on my list as well. In our best of two thousand seven episode, I believe I mentioned that, but this is one of those situations where there was a festival release in two thousand seven, but most people didn't get a chance to see it until it had a theatrical release in two thousand eight. So whatever I'm I'm putting it on this list as well. It's this remarkable Romanian film about a couple of friends, one of whom is pregnant, and they're they're setting out to obtain an abortion for the pregnant friend. So it's very rough subject matter, and maybe for for people like you and me, Wade, who are consider themselves pro-life, there's there's some stuff to work through with the subject matter here. But I think what I like about this film so much is that it doesn't downplay the the horrific nature of this procedure that they're trying to get while also doing justice to the sheer desperation that is driving these women to seek this out not only just because of the procedure itself but also because in the society in which the story is set which is you know communist dominated eastern europe abortions aren't a thing that you get and so going through back channels finding a doctor who's even willing to do that is its own harrowing experience. And this movie makes you feel every second of that. And I think if you're going to call yourself pro-life, these are things you really have to grapple with. So it's a movie worth checking out. Yeah, it's a movie where I think both sides have to grapple with issues. It's not one where you could say, well, it's this side or that side. I think it's it's both. There's some really good picks. So I'll kind of start at one and work my way back. I realize I asked you to do that backwards, but we'll go with it. Um, the Dark Knight is number one. In Bruges is number two. Wally's number three. Still Walking is number four. Rachel Getting Married is number five. Here's kind of where I'll I'll start with the new picks that maybe you haven't heard. Cloverfield from Matt Reeves is number six. You know, yeah. I love good monster movies, and this is a really good one. And it's it's one of the better, if not best, uh, found footage films. So I, I really do like it. Uh, Synecdoche, New York, number seven. I'll give you a moment to respond to this. I know you don't like this film, Kevin. Number eight, Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino. It's one of those yeah. that... I, I think it says so much about him and his career and the past meeting the present. And yeah, so I, I like it. Number eight. Yeah, I I don't know about the film. I, I feel like Eastwood didn't quite manage to finesse the balance that that film needed where his racist protagonist played by Eastwood himself uh, 
doesn't come across as a cute old man racist, but comes across as an actual racist. I don't think Eastwood's performance and his directorial choices really make that work. So it's it's definitely not one of my favorites of his. Oh, I would say the opposite. I would say the opposite. Uh, so that's number eight. Number nine, Man on Wire. And I mentioned that kind of 10 is close with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But uh, number 10, this is kind of a guilty pleasure. I saw this earlier this year in its entirety, but it's Step Brothers. I, <laughs> I don't... I... It's I I wouldn't go out and recommend that to a lot of people in my church, right? But I have I laugh so hard with that movie, and I'm watching it with my brother, so we're just laughing up a storm. And it really takes the concept of blended families and just pushes it to the extreme. And I'm not sure if Will Ferrell has been funnier in his life. It it just makes me laugh. Uh, so. That's number that's number 10 for me. Uh, I've mentioned some other films. Some films that are kind of big from this year that didn't make either of our lists. Uh, Let the Right One In is a pretty big film. It's a good film. It uh, didn't quite make the list. A film that I think is all right, uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button came out in 2008. We mentioned Tropic Thunder. Doubt was a big film in 2008. You don't hear a ton Doubt's about a that. Good one. Uh, Wendy and Lucy, a pretty good movie, came out in 2008. And then a movie that I saw for the first time, incredibly disappointing, Revolutionary Road. I felt like I needed to see that. Uh, did not like it. And then a movie that I thought was pretty good, uh, Hunger, uh, Michael Fassbender. And uh, so there's some movies, a bunch of movies from 2008 that we haven't even talked about, but they are out there. Some of them we liked, some we didn't like. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good roundup. Uh, and yeah, I'm kind of with you on Revolutionary Road. It has Michael Shannon in it, though, so it has that going for it. <laughs> that is our top five list of the year 2008. Of course, we are interested in knowing your own favorite films from that year, so make sure to let us know. We've We've mentioned the contact info earlier in this episode already, so use one of those to make your voice heard. Wade, it's been it's been a journey. It's been <laughs> this episode has been a an odyssey. An odyssey of sorts. Yeah, it, going back, I was like I mentioned, I was twenty one, and uh, yeah, I feel like this episode is almost as long as it's been since those films came out. So. We have that going for us. <laughs> well, definitely thank you to all the listeners who stuck with us through it. And we, we hope you enjoy it as much as, as we did. I, I, I Like I said, I love these little retrospective episodes we get to do. Yeah, now it's time to prepare for the best films of 2009 and uh, set, your, set your watches, uh, listeners, because that's coming in one year. So we'll get to that later. Once again, thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon support supporters and by christandpopculture.com our producer is jonathan clausen who every week patiently helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade beard and my co-host is kevin mclinathan and until next time this is seeing and believing you have been listening to seeing and believing an official production of the christ and pop culture podcast network Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz. 
used under Creative Commons License 3.0.